Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hi, everybody. How are you? Welcome to the Other People Show. My name's Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, and it is time for another Sunday episode. What do you say? My guest is Megan Milks, author of the novel Margaret and the Mystery of the Missing Body. It is available now from the Feminist Press. Margaret and the Mystery of the Missing Body is also the official December pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. The NervousBreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community and it has its own monthly book club. For more on that, go to thenervousbreakdown.com. So I had a nice time meeting Megan Milks, who has been extraordinarily busy this year. They have published more than one book this year. There is a story collection out right now as well called Slug and Other Stories, also from the Feminist Press. Other books include A Personal History of the Early Internet, called Tori Amos Bootleg Webring, available from Instar Books, as part of the Remember the Internet series. With Marissa Crawford, they co-edited a book called We Are the Babysitter's Club, Essays and Artwork from Grown-Up Readers. That is available from Chicago Review Press, also out this year. My word. Megan uh, also co-edited with K.J. Serenkowski a book called Asexualities, Feminist and Queer Perspectives, published in 2014 by Rutledge. So, Megan Milks, coming up in just a moment. Quick reminder that this podcast is offered freely, more than 700 episodes and counting. If you like the program, support the program for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash otherpplpod. Tip your server. Another quick reminder that this podcast has its own email newsletter. I do a weekly email newsletter. Did you know that? I send out updates on the show when new episodes go up. And I also share a few links to things that are interesting to me. Things that I'm reading. You know what I'm saying. I try to make it interesting and painless. So if you want to sign up for the email newsletter, it goes out once a week. That's it. 
And uh, you can do that at otherppl.com, the show's official website. Just look in the left sidebar and click on email newsletter or sign up for the email newsletter. It's easy. So I have a novel coming out next uh, spring, which many of you know about. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, due out in May of 2022. And in the last episode, I announced that the book cover is now public. We did the cover reveal. So if you missed that and you want to see the cover for my new novel, just go to the show's social media sites on Twitter and Instagram. On Twitter, it's at OtherPPL, and on Instagram, it's at OtherPPL.podcast. You can view the cover for my novel and judge it silently. Or not silently. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Megan Milks is my guest. Her new novel, Margaret and the Mystery of the Missing Body, is the official December pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Great time talking with Megan, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Here we go. This is Megan Milks, and their new novel, One More Time, is called Margaret and the Mystery of the Missing Body. Well, I love that we're starting with Fiona Apple, and I love that we have a shared love for Fiona Apple. The dream I had about Fiona Apple was honestly pretty disturbing, and I would rather not share it publicly. However, I will say that the dream ended up motivating me to write what would become like the first excerpts of the book in which Fiona actually played the role of this like goddess that my protagonist would pray to. So in early drafts of the book, my protagonist was named Matilda and there was this like homage to rolled dolls matilda but there was also this repeated line that was riffing off of judy bloom's are you there god it's me margaret so the line was are you there goddess it's me matilda and goddess was like in matilda's mind like this fiona apple i think it was actually just fiona apple i don't think it was even like a character based on fiona apple it was like 
the Fiona Apple. So Fiona Apple has always played a large part in the book, though her role has been kind of pushed back a little bit. Okay, and was Fiona was Fiona Apple's music important to you when you were growing up? Okay, so I was really a big fan of Tori Amos, and Fiona Apple was like in my in my category of like secondary tier favorites. But as I've grown older, I've come to appreciate her more and more. That first album, her debut title, is just extraordinary. Extraordinary. It's so brilliant. As you said, yeah, the songwriting is so solid. The language play is so fun. And she's just like, she's one of those artists who has like developed and grown and, you know, um, and, and also I think really has a lot of integrity, like personal integrity and yeah, she doesn't, uh, capitulate often, or it seems that way to me to the industry in ways that I find really admirable. Yeah. I'm, I'm the same way and not to make this, you know, too Fiona intensive, (laughs) (laughs) but I think back too to her infamous MTV Music Awards speech about how the world is bullshit, which gets you know gets some uh, attention. You know, in your book, there are allusions to this, and mm-hmm. I think of that nowadays in the same context that I think of, for example, Sinead O'Connor ripping up a photo of the Pope on Saturday Night Live. Mm-hmm. These yeah. were, these were, I don't know how improvised Sinead's. I guess it, it had to have been premeditated. I mean, who who just shows up? Who just keeps a photo of the Pope in their pocket? <laughs> <laughs> but the point is that these were public acts of protest that were widely reviled in their time. Mm. But I got to say, Fiona Apple saying the world is bullshit at an award show in the late 90s. I think it was the late 90s. I feel like that's aging well. I feel like that take is aging very well, uh, and she should not have been so maligned for it. Yeah, I don't even remember. I feel like within my friend group, certainly we saw it as like really radical and like amazing. And maybe I just wasn't that clued into like what the broadcast media were saying about it. But I mean, I totally believe you that that she was very maligned. But yeah, I've always recognized it as like the radical act of protest that it was. And just to say that at an award show, which is maybe like, you know, peak bullshit experience and yes, (laughs) at the music in the music business and all of the like artifice of like entertainment media and stuff. I just found it charming, but Mm -hmm. I do remember people in the media, of course, calling her what, like immature and silly and kind of like, Mm -hmm. you know, just basically defining it as a dumb take. And I don't know, there's just a lot more to her than she sometimes gets credit for. So I very much enjoyed that Fiona played a role in your book. And I I want to talk for listeners who have not had a chance to read about the world that this novel inhabits. Uh, I think we start with Margaret, who is a character who has, I, th- I think you might have characterized it this way, has a problem but doesn't, know what it is. And for me as a reader, it brought into relief what it must be like to be somebody who is young and queer and non-normative when it comes to gender, but doesn't realize it yet or have even have language for it. You know, I think Mm -hmm. the time in which this book takes place 
you know, there wasn't nearly as much discussion of these things or availability of discussion of these things online, correct? Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. Well, the internet was very young and I'm sure these, those, well, these discussions were happening in certain pockets of the internet, but my character, Margaret, certainly did not have access to those conversations or those pockets of conversation. Yeah. I think back to when I was a kid, I was in high school in the early to mid nineties, graduated in 1993. There was nothing like none of this stuff was on the surface, at least in my, I was in Indiana, so it wasn't exactly a hotbed of non-normative gender discussion or whatever, but Mm -hmm. you know, I'm sure it was happening in pockets, as you say, but I just did not have access to it. And I, I just think about the importance, I guess, as a writerly person, I think about the importance of language. If you don't have words for things, if you don't have uh, the terminology available to you, then you are completely lost. And mm-hmm. that's who this young girl is. You know, there's something really sweet and heartbreaking about her because she's in this kind of suburban Virginia milieu that's very recognizable to me. There's something very similar to the Midwestern suburb that I grew up in. I guess all these suburbs that eventually run together and become the same, right? There's, mm. there's a lot of commonality, but it's a kind of wilderness in its way for somebody in her situation. So yeah. I'm, I guess a question for you, I, I'm just kind of like summarizing here. So I think a question for you would be to ask you about your own upbringing. Like, do you, did you share similar experiences? Were you raised in Virginia? Did you come up in a place that was like the place that I was just describing or like one of the places mm-hmm. I was just describing? So I would consider, I would describe the book as somewhere between semi-autobiographical and autobiographical. I don't know. Certainly there's a lot of fiction in it, um, a lot of fictionalization. But yeah, I think there is a lot that I share with Margaret as a, I, yeah, in some ways Margaret is like an avatar for for me and my younger self. And, but yes, I did. I grew up in Chester, Virginia. I was an 81 child, 1981. I grew up in kind of a, it was like a planned neighborhood that was very rural, rural. I can never say that word and certainly suburban, perhaps sub suburban, but yeah, I grew up with a lot of nature, you know, like lots of, like my friends and I built tree houses and like explored the creeks in the neighborhood and you know camped outside and looked at bugs a lot things like that that sounds good (laughs) yeah I guess in some way yeah I don't know I don't know that I was necessarily a a tomboy as a kid but I was a reader and then with my friends we did these outdoor things but I would have some in many ways I would have preferred staying home and reading (laughs) Um, but if I did that I wouldn't have had any friends so Right. So yeah. when you're a kid growing up in uh, Chester, Virginia, you're doing all these things to sort of, uh, you know, be social, but you would, you were a complete bookworm inward. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine as adolescence dawned, we're dealing with a lot of the same questions and challenges that Margaret was dealing with in terms of like self-knowledge and identity. 
I think, oh, I definitely was, but I didn't know that I was, you know, I was just like moving through my days and sort of just, you know, trying to figure out what was next, where would I go to college, you know, but I, I did feel like, yeah, I felt like apart from my friends in certain ways. But yeah, I don't know, like, as a kid, I was definitely, like, as I said, like, I was, I really was drawn to books and to to reading. I loved spending time in my family home. We had a, we had this sunroom um, where I would just like camp out with my stack of library books and just like go go through book after book. Sometimes I would read to my cat. What was your and, cat's uh, name? My cat's name was Tiger. Oh, I think I don't think we named Tiger. I think I think Tiger came with that name, but. In any case, yeah, I, I lived a lot in the world of books. And so I think that is also something that is shared between me as a kid and, and Margaret as a character in that Margaret is kind of moving through these different like narrative environments. And like the book is so much an exploration of, I think, my my literary heritage as like a a kid to teen growing up. And so my literary heritage is kind of like encoded into the structure of the book and it kind of forms like this the yeah I guess like the structural organization is like shifting from genre to genre and like narrative environment to narrative environment you know as Margaret is growing up sure Mm -hmm. so let's I want to try to track for listeners some of the influences in your literary heritage there's Roald Dahl's Matilda uh, Stephen King's Carrie, Babysitter's Club. Uh, I'm trying to think of what, what else am I missing? Oh, Girl Interrupted. Yeah. So there's the Girls Can Solve Anything mystery series. And there are a couple of like mini mysteries that are in the book, in my book. And that series is very much, as you said, indebted to the Babysitter's Club, Nancy Drew, a little bit of Fear Street and Goosebumps mixed in there's like a pair you know there's these paranormal dimensions and um, a lot of absurdity actually it's very campy it's like a campy bsc plus nancy drew and then where the book starts off yeah you mentioned this kind of running theme of like margaret's problem like what is what is margaret's problem margaret doesn't know what the problem is and i think about those sections when margaret is in high school as like drawing on the problem novel as like a genre of of YA, like these realist novels where there's like a social problem that's being dealt with. And some of often like the problem in problem in a problem novel would be like drug abuse or divorce or like cutting or, you know, homelessness, teen homelessness or, you know, um, family violence, things like that. So for Margaret, the problem is, well, there, there are a few problems. There's like this queerness and transness she can't name. But then there's also the more kind of immediate problem of this eating disorder. She's developing these dis- disordered eating practices. And that's when kind of like the eating disorder narrative sort of takes over the book. And so the center, the third section, which I think of as the girl interrupted sense section is where Margaret enters the treatment center. And then, yeah. And then the final section I think of as the aliens and anorexics, or I guess the actual title is aliens and anorexia, the Chris Krause book. That's really kind of the shadow text of that last section. Okay. So you're doing a lot in this book. 
you talk about Girls Can Solve Anything, which is like the Nancy Drew Babysitter's Club homage, which functions as a kind of flashback device to her uh, Margaret's pre-adolescent self and mm-hmm. a time that was, I think, simpler. It's, it's just a time that's simpler for everybody, I think, uh, or mm-hmm. at least hopefully, when you don't have the problems that come along with adolescence and adulthood and you hopefully have childhood fun and friends mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of a narrower and simpler outlook and slate of things to deal with, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you get to, like you said, the girl interrupted section, which takes place at, I believe it's called Briarwood. Yes. Which I found interesting because uh, that was the name of a neighborhood in my town. There are lots of Briar. My neighborhood was Briar Stone. <laughs> it's just, like they, they need to get more creative. But uh, she was at Briarwood and she meets Carrie, who definitely you could, I could feel echoes of Angelina Jolie's character, especially once I sort of learned about that, you know, in my research. But there's a lot of shifting, you know, from mm-hmm. one chapter or from one section to the next. And what I found interesting about this is that you were you were using discontinuity and genre as a way of exploring transness. Mm, yeah. Like that wasn't, I mean, mea culpa, that wasn't necessarily like evident to me on my read. Like, but once mm-hmm. I, once I read that, I was like, ah, like it made mm-hmm. it make sense in retrospect. So can you just talk about mm-hmm. that a little bit? Like the decision to, like kind of move from genre to genre, you switch POV um, mm-hmm. from section to section. There's something very distinct about the various sections, but you just talk about the relationship to transness and to, I don't know, the creative decision-making that went into that. Well, so for just to start off, you know, like having taken, you know, I've been taking testosterone for many years now, but, um, and having just like experienced my voice drop and just experiencing like, a very distinct change in my physical voice made me think a lot about voice in my writing and how my voice as a writer may or may not be changing. Yeah, I think I it just kind of emboldened me to kind of think about voice shifts in a long form narrative and how they might kind of, yeah, how I could kind of play with them and exploit them to invite questions about kind of, yeah, subjectivity and how stable is subjectivity, how fluid is subjectivity, you know, how to explore that through voice. So I think, I mean, I've always been very, just very obsessed with genre and I love books that kind of shape shift as they go. And so I think I was already like excited about doing that in some way. And I started thinking about just the problem of cohesion, I guess, and like what it would mean for to like try to make all of these genres cohere. And I think to a certain extent, right, all of us are asking these questions about who we are and how we change, right? No matter whether we're trans or, or not. Right. As we change and we grow older, we're sort of like, we're always the same person, but we're always a different person as well. You know, that's just like what it is to like the condition of changing and growing and and getting older. But I think that those questions become really close and 
take on a different tenor for those of us who are trans and, you know, who are um, experiencing like a pretty rapid shift in presentation and perhaps identity and just like how we interact in the world. So these questions of um, sameness versus difference become really, uh, you know, they become like the questions like day to day, like how am I the same and how am I different based on like how my body is changing and how my appearance is changing and how people are responding to these changes. So I think, you know, I was just really interested in exploring those questions through these different shifts in the book. You know, the book is always changing and uh, the character is always changing as well. The voice shifts, but at the same time, it's always the same book and it's always the same character. So I was really interested in just using those shifts to explore that tension between sameness and difference and cohesion and incohesion. So another thing that I notice in this book is the attention to the body. And uh, I, I guess we call it body horror, which is very much part and parcel to adolescence. But I think some of us have more of this than others. I definitely have it. I'm grossed out by the body. <laughs> like, like so much of it. I mean, like you do such a nice job of zeroing in on like small details, you know, of, I don't know, sensory details. It could be the way that something smells or the feeling of something in your mouth or whatever it is, you know, food stuff, like all that kind of sensory detail that I feel like it's really uh, like heightened when we are in our teen years. Mm -hmm. I had so much of that. Like I, I remember when I was a teenager, I'm still kind of like this. Like I always had like gum or mints always, uh -huh. especially as a teenager. Cause I was like, it's disgusting to have like people have bad breath when you're in like some junior high and someone's breathing <laughs> on you. You're just like, this is so gross. <laughs> I never wanted to be that guy, you know, like don't smell bad. Try not to smell bad. If you can, I mean, you can control this, do something about this. But yes. <laughs> anyway, you uh, have a similar interest or at least a attention to this like in your work. And I would assume in your life, particularly as a teen. Oh, definitely. Yeah. As a teen, teen, I was just mortified by any kind of, you know, bodily emanation. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I was thinking about this recently in relation to, you know, me as a teacher in the classroom. And I've noticed that like, I don't have to worry so much about like my own or other people's like body, body odors or bad breath just because of like masks. You know, it does change things. I used to teach at 8 a.m. And, and a lot of uh, students would just roll into class like without brushing their teeth. And it was just like, oh, <laughs> yeah. I, now, you know what I'm thinking of now? Like not to get too gross here, but I'm just remembering. Remember when you would have to go up to your teacher's desk to ask a question? And I'm in like Indiana or Wisconsin, depending on what part of my childhood. And I remember you're like kind of standing there and you're sort of face to face with your teacher and they would have just like had a coffee. And in Indiana, they usually had a cigarette too. Most of my mm. teachers, I feel like most of them smoked and, or a lot of them did. And it's just like, that's a very distinct, like recurring memory from my youth. It's just like <laughs> teachers breathing on me. <laughs> so it's like the kind of stuff you, I, I hadn't thought about, you know, until you kind of confronted in a fiction that's looking at this time of life, like under a, like under a microscope, the way that you've done, I you know, hadn't 
thought back to that part of my life and those experiences, but it was so relatable. And <laughs> I don't know. I just felt some, uh, it's always that, that comfort of like shared interest where it's like, oh, okay, I'm not the only one who was mm-hmm. this like fixated on body horror when I was a kid (laughs) (laughs) and also like the grotesque, you know, like you, you love the grotesque and Mm -hmm. I mean, I know a lot of this stuff is tied to adolescence, but it's also like the grotesque as a literary tradition. Are there forebears of yours in literature that you were uh, inspired by on this front? Mm, Yeah. I mean, I think Dodie Bellamy is like, probably one of the biggest influences on my work and her work definitely celebrates um, abjection a lot. Yeah. Especially bodily abjection, but yeah. And I think also what attracts me to her work is the way she kind of celebrates pleasure and jouissance as well, especially like sexual pleasure and jouissance. I recently reread her book on the letters of Mina Harker, which just got republished. And it's just like such a, just such a hot, hot book, but there's also a lot of objection in it as well. Wait, what is it? Forgive me for not knowing. You said jouissance. Oh, jouissance. It's that, it's that French word for pleasure. Oh, okay. That's often used. uh, I think like it's often used in, you know, feminist discourse to describe kind of erotic pleasure, particularly, especially like female quote unquote erotic pleasure. I want to talk about, the experience that Margaret has with food, which I think is an extension of this, you know, the body horror. It's not just like the functions of the body that are disgusting as we go through adolescence and our bodies change and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But there's also social norms that I think especially adolescent girls, but adolescent boys too, feel a sense of obligation to conform to, you know, it's something that happens kind of intuitively uh, based on what the culture is telling us and what our community is telling us. But, you know, she is definitely somebody who struggles with food and body shame and body issues. Mm-hmm. And again, I don't know. I found myself relating. Like food grossed me out. <laughs> food grossed me out to an unusual degree, maybe, when I was a kid. Like people having bad table manners. Like I just remember sitting at the, I'm again, I'm going back to junior <laughs> high. But just the kid at the table when you're eating in junior high in the cafeteria and he's like not closing his mouth, he's spitting food everywhere or <laughs> like, or just smacking, you know, like those kinds of things always really bothered me. But anyway, so it wasn't, it wasn't food itself, but the way people chew, the way like mastication. Oh no, no, mastication. it could be, it could be food too, but mastication, okay. mastication, like crunching. I'm one of those people who, if someone's like crunching near me to this day, I don't, there's even a word for it and I always forget what it is, but if you're like eating and crunching and it's audible and you're near me, I will just like leave the room. I can't deal. It's too much. I hear it in like stereo and, uh, there's a certain subset of the population, you know, that is like this, but I I don't know. I just want to hear you talk a little bit more about writing into these issues with food, which affect so many of us. And I don't know if I, I don't know. It's weird. It makes me think about what like a a healthy relationship with food is. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think most people, I live in Los Angeles, but I think everybody's got some sort of weird thing around food, right? Everybody's got like dietary needs and Mm -hmm. a different theory of the case. But like, what was it like for you as a kid growing up in Virginia? Like, it seems like it would be the kind of place where you just sort of ate anything. That's where it was like when, where I was, you know, we didn't have 
nearly as much conversation around, I don't know, the finer points of diet. It was more just like whatever tastes good, you eat it. Yeah, I think, you know, I grew up in a pretty all-American household where we, you know, would my my mother was a housewife basically and so yeah she would we would have for dinner typically we would have you know a meat a veggie side potatoes or bread you know like it was that was pretty much like the daily content of our of our meals that doesn't sound so bad it was no it wasn't bad it wasn't no my mom was a was a decent cook yeah and then this was also the heyday of, or it seemed, I actually don't know the history of, of you know, various diet foods, but I, I just remember the fat-free craze, you know, like snack wells. And I think like lean cuisine was like newly popular. And so those things were um, definitely on my radar as well. And yeah, I do remember, I think when a Whole Foods opened in Richmond, like we lived 30 minutes south of Richmond, which was the biggest, you know, the, the city that we were attached to. So I think I'm remembering, yeah, when the, whole, when the Whole Foods opened when I was in high school, it was like a big deal because it was like, you know, it kind of marked this shift into an awareness of like organic produce and things like that, that like we had, like my family at least and my community, just like that was like not on our radar, um, like the organic food movement and things like that. So those were picking up, you know, those were becoming more, that kind of awareness was becoming more, more prominent as I was leaving high school, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. I feel like this stuff always changes. This is one of my major frustrations with it is that, you know, you talk about the fat the fat free craze and how fat was the fat was the devil for a period mm -hmm. of years. Mm -hmm. And I remember too, as a kid, there was a time when it was like, you know, if you're an athlete, which at that time in my youth, I sort of was, you know, and it was like, you got to eat lots of carbohydrates before a game, which I think today would be considered laughable. Maybe I'm wrong, but you know what I'm saying? Like what frustrates me is that there's never really, it never seems like there's ever any real progress in understanding. Mm -hmm. It's just like this cyclical seeming, Mm -hmm. never ending <laughs> like process of, you know, changing from one thing to the next. We, I don't feel like we ever really land at any kind of conclusions. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. There are just, you know, new experiments and new arguments. I think what I feel like right now we're in like a protein craze, like right. everybody's very seeking protein above anything else. <laughs> are you seeking protein in your life? <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I do. When I, I compare protein grams and yogurts, yogurt cups. Yeah, I do. Uh, yeah. Like you got to look and it's like, well, how many carbohydrates? What about added sugar? I feel like sugar is also the devil. Oh yes. Which maybe it is. I don't know. I mean, I think <laughs> like naturally occurring sugars and fruit, that's the one that really f like messes with my head and makes me frustrated because it's like, okay, I get that. Like just loading up processed foods with additional sugar it's probably not good for you. I, that makes complete sense to me. I think we can, I think we can sort of, uh, table that argument. And then, uh, at the same time, I find myself hearing from people or reading things online where it's like fruit is bad. Fruit sugar is, you know, not ideal for your health. And I'm like, dude, are we really at a point where like you eat an apple and it's bad for you? Like, I just, I refuse to believe this it makes me crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. <laughs> 
just you've given me an opportunity to uh to complain but <laughs> anyway i i want to ask you about pop culture as well i mean you've we've talked a lot about it in you know in passing here and there but i feel like body horror the grotesque and popular culture are three of the big themes in this book and you know coming up as a bookish kid in what was it chester virginia mm-hmm. it seems like you probably would be somebody who was really looking to culture and to book culture in particular for answers. You know, I think I had some of that as well, you know, where you're sensing that there's more out there or you're sensing that there's something going on, but you don't have language for it, or you don't have mm-hmm. uh, an understanding. You talk about, um, in addition to the ones that we've already discussed, some of the other like big cultural touchstones for you when you were growing up and, how that informed your sense of self and place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Gosh, there's so much. That's such a good question. Well, something that I do want to talk about as a touchstone is the book Nell's Quilt by Susan Terrace, which is a text that I reference in the novel. Um, the, the ghost Nell the ghost of Briarwood is actually taken from this book, Nell's Quilt, which is a very obscure YA historical fiction, historical novel. I think it was published in 1989. I could be wrong about that, but um, yeah, late 80s. But yeah, I just remember I read it. It's about this tomboy, Nell, who grows up on a farm and her parents, her father kind of promises her to his widowed neighbor in marriage and she rejects that future and protests by restricting her food you know she she stops eating and 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 it's sort of like a way for her to reject this um planned future anyway but i read that as a kid and i remember feeling like really uncomfortable by nell's gender she was this gender non-conforming character in some ways and she, when she stops eating, she sort of becomes more boy-like and, and sort of like really gets excited by that kind of shift uh, in embodiment. She shaves her head and among other things. But yeah, no, I remember reading it and just being like, I, and being aware that there was something queer about Nell and just being like, I can't do this, you know, um, and just sort of like pushing it. I read it, but I was like, I don't like this character in the same way that I had similar responses to Christy, the, the character in the babysitter's club who most people are sort of point to and say like Christy is coded as queer, but these are both characters that, you know, like as an adult, as like an out queer adult, I've gone back and just be like, these characters are amazing. You know, how could I not have like loved them? purely as a kid but I think there was something uh, dangerous about them you know that I really glommed onto when I was a when I was a kid um, just because I you know because uh, I was struggling so much around those things I don't know if that answers your question yeah no it makes me think of like that combination of like attraction to it like a gravitation towards those characters but also like a fear of those characters that makes sense uh, and I think too of like where you grew up. I have to imagine that Chester, Virginia, was not, and maybe still isn't, a place that's super friendly to uh, people who are gender nonconforming. That's not mm-hmm. like a place that has got to be easy to be growing up and and you know dealing with those sorts of questions. Correct? 
I think, yeah, I think that's probably true. Yeah. It's been a long time since I've lived in Chester, but yeah, definitely growing up. I mean, it's hard to say because I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, I I don't, I don't feel like people were responding to me as a, as a queer person, but um, it, it would have been hard for me to articulate a queer identity for sure if I had been able to come into one. But I guess the question then would be, do you feel like maybe the culture and the community that you were in was part of the reason why you weren't uh, identifying or uh, expressing yourself in that way? Like, was there an element of like wanting to keep it close to the vest because you felt like it wouldn't be accepted? That's such a hard question to answer because I just don't know how, I don't know how aware I was at the time of, of what, of, you know, my sexual identity, you know, it wasn't something that um, people really talked about. Even as a teenager? Well, I was so, I, I was honestly like very sex phobic as a, as a teen. So I just kind of preferred not to have those conversations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. It's really hard to know. You know, I've gone over and over about it in my in my um, head for, you know, for many years and just be like, could I have known? Would I have known? Did I know? Like, who who knew? <laughs> like, what what did I know? When um, when may I ask, when did you know? Um, that, too, is a difficult question to answer because uh, it was like exploratory, you know, like I remember refer I remember describing myself as queer maybe the first time I described myself as queer I was like sort of worried that it wasn't true you know like did I did I have the cred yet to describe myself in this way you know like what 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 would qualify me to be or to describe myself as queer it it was it was unclear to me you know I was worried that I would be found out as like not queer enough or like not actually queer or something. So yeah, I mean, yeah, I really, I can't answer that. It was after, but it was after Chester. It was after Chester for sure. And you talked about uh, like not being interested in sex as a teen and even being like sex, you, you described it as sex phobic. Like, was there like a, did you grow up in a religious household? Was religion a part of your youth? And did that inform perspective at all? Um, my family was Catholic, is Catholic, and we went to church, and I went to CCD, and me too. I did get? Oh yeah, yeah, the whole thing got confirmed. <laughs> um, <laughs> I can still yeah. I can still sing a lot of those songs, probably if you played one. You know, I remember them all. <laughs> Same, yeah. No, and I was certainly I was like not invested in it at all. You know, me neither. I yeah, um, I didn't. I didn't drink the Kool-Aid, so to speak. You know, I grew up, as I'm sure you did, with, like, the specter of AIDS. And I think I also just really wanted to be, I wanted to be good and right. And, like, I really trusted authority. And so, you know, we were provided with abstinence-only education. And I was just like, yeah, sex is bad. Never going to have it. (laughs) Um, So I think that's really more, more what it was all about. Yeah, that's it. I'm, I was kind of the same way. I've I've often, you know, in years past, described myself as somebody who had a lot of trust in the adults, like to a fault uh, in some cases, had a lot of trust in the adults in my orbit. I think it's because I have good parents who, uh, you know, I had no reason not to trust them. That doesn't mean they got everything right. No parents do. 
Mm-hmm. So I think in some cases I was ill-served by like accepting at face value some of what was being taught to me and told to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you sort of learn these things as you go. You go, oh, well, that was bullshit. I, I don't know why I was listening to, <laughs> listening to those people. Or I think about drugs in particular. I, you know, you're a little bit younger than I am, but we had like the just say no culture. Oh, totally. When I was a kid. And I will forever say that lumping all drugs together into one big batch and just pointing at them and saying no is a terrible way to teach children about drugs. Mm. Uh, you know, eventually you smoke pot and realize that like your head didn't explode. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so then it's like, well, they lied to me. This was fun. Like I just, you know, I just laughed a lot and ate a lot. And <laughs> now I'm going to try everything because these people lied to me and you don't want to, you know, I don't think it's necessarily advisable to go try everything. Do you see what I'm saying? So. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so, you knew, like, and you said your mom was this, a kind of a stay-at-home mom. Do you have, like, literary parents? Like, did you have, I mean, were people feeding you books in your family, or was this something you came to on your own? My parents do read a lot. Yeah, they read a lot. Um, we don't really, I think, I would say that my parents, like, definitely supported my reading habit, but didn't necessarily, like, influence, like, what I read. But they took me to the library, you know every two weeks and uh there were always books in our household for sure for sure my parents read a lot of nonfiction, and right now my mom is in a is in a really she's in a book club that she's like really excited about and so she tells me about like her her book club picks and things like that so yeah so we have conversations about books but i would not call them like what is what was the term you used book people yeah i don't know or like are either of your parents by education or by trade like writerly at all no, no, they're not. No. My dad is retired now but worked um as a civilian in the government for for almost his entire career mm-hmm. in hmm. um business management. Like in the federal government or in the state? In the in the federal government, he worked for the Department of Defense working with oh gosh, what are they called? The um oh the commissaries. So he worked for DECA, the Defense Commissary Agency, and he kind of ran the commissaries on various uh, military bases in whatever region he was stationed at. Okay. So not a writer. (laughs) Not a writer. No. (laughs) Though recently he's been like dabbling in writing. He wants to write a paranormal crime novel. Oh, Um, okay. So, okay. But no, no, no. Now we're getting to it because usually there is something, whether it's realized or not. Um, or whether it manifests like professionally or not, but you, your dad sounds like he has like a write, like a writing impulse that maybe he didn't get to do anything with because of his career, and now you're getting to actualize it. Maybe I don't know. I mean, last time I talked to him, he decided it was too hard. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, you're like, see, see, <laughs> that's actually music to and my so ears. He's, he's abandoned his book. Well, but I know I can always come back to it. I, I like hearing that because I think we've, if you're a writer and you've declared yourself a writer, you know, people know that this is what you're doing or at least partially doing. You have to have had the experience for people like, you know, I think I might write a book someday or, you know, they kind of make light of <laughs> Like you're in, like I've had this experience where I'm like struggling so hard with a project, and then, you know, somebody will be like, "Yeah, I might do that." Like it's like, (laughs) like walking across the street, or you know, something so simple. But then you sit down to do it, and like you quickly learn how, you know, incredibly challenging it can be, uh, unless you're some kind of rare genius. But yes, 
<laughs> so, okay. So take us out of Chester. Like you're in Chester, coming of age, not really clued in to who you are and, you know, like a long way to go, you know, in terms of like your understanding of yourself and your understanding of the world, which is entirely defensible because you were what, 16 years old. So then you leave that neck of the woods and you go off to college. Mm-hmm. Whereabouts? Um, I went to Virginia Tech for a year and then I uh, was like pretty miserable there. So I ended up transferring to University of Virginia and uh, finishing out my college years there. And then I took a couple of years off and I was in newspaper publishing and then magazine publishing and then went went to grad school for creative writing um, at Temple in Philadelphia. And then I pursued my PhD at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Yeah. And then I, you know, took a couple of teaching gigs, like visiting professorships and wasn't really finding that dream tenure track job. So I ended up just moving to New York five years ago and just trying to figure it, figure it out from there. So wait, do you, are you have your PhD? I do have my PhD. Yes. So I'm speaking with a doctor. That is correct. Wow. And still with that PhD, and I, I, I say this only because I think so many people who listen to this show are writers. And I mean, uh, like, again, I, you know, I've had this conversation before. What better career to have, uh, like breadwinning career to have to sort of supplement uh, your writing life than teaching just because there's flexibility of schedule. It kind of keeps you in the game. It's just like it's the, such a natural course to take. And yet these jobs are, are not easy to land, these teaching jobs, even oh, with a yeah. PhD. Like, it's not like you get your PhD and it's just they're lining up to hire you. It's still challenging, even with the PhD. Right. Yeah. And there's just so many generations of people with PhDs and MFAs who have not gotten jobs. And so that like every year there's like more and more people who are qualified for the very few jobs that are available. Hmm. Yeah. Because I think about that sometimes. I taught a little bit earlier in my career, and I'm like, maybe I would go back to teaching one day. But then I, every time I think about it, I'm just like, but that's like such a crowded lane. Who's, mm-hmm. There's going to be a million people applying for those jobs, especially the tenure track jobs. For because sure. the adjunct teachers, which I was one for five years, get paid basically nothing. It's such a, I don't know, it makes me makes me angry to talk about it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I am right there with you. So now yeah. you're in. So you're in New York. How long have you been there? Uh, this is my fifth year. Yeah, is that right? Fifth. I've been here five and a half years. Yeah, and you and like I've it. been adjuncting. You have. Yeah. I mean, yes. like, hopefully it leads to something. Like, hopefully, I don't mind. You know, I can understand some sort of like dues paying thing, but I don't know. You should also be paid a living wage and should have some benefits if you're working full time. You know, for a university especially a university with like a big endowment or whatever. But you've had a lot happen, uh, as I think we were talking about before we, we started recording, in uh, recent times. Like this year, you've had multiple books come out. Uh, I want to know more about your uh, writing career. Oh, is that your cat? This is my roommate's cat, yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I, I love it when uh, animals intrude on the podcast. <laughs> But I want to talk to you about your path to publication. Like everybody's got kind of a different story to tell, but I always like to hear about that part of it 
because uh, it can be instructive for people listening. So I'm wondering, like, like you know, to have multiple books, more than one book come out in a year mm-hmm. is unusual. Mm-hmm. Can you just give the overview of like how you got to the point where where you were publishing or you mm-hmm. are publishing and then also like why why publishing all at once like multiple books so just give us a little, like sure. a little bit of that history sure yeah so my first book kill marguerite and other stories was published in 2014 by a small midwestern press uh, called emergency press or i guess i don't know actually if it was Mr. midwestern at that time I think uh, actually Brian, my publisher, lived in Seattle. I think anyway, it's neither here nor there. Um, but anyway, so that was 2014, and that was uh, two years after I completed my PhD. And the press ended up having to fold shortly after my book came out. You know, in the way that most small presses do. Um, you know, that's just like the life of a small press, unfortunately. So. What then? Then for many years, I was just struggling to finish this novel. And it took me a long time to do that. I was moving around a lot uh, while I was, you know, jumping around for these um, visiting jobs. And, um, and also, I was really kind of preoccupied with the question of whether or not to, to take testosterone, whether or not I was or could become trans or, you know, what choices I wanted to make around, you know, uh, embodiment and like, you know, shifting embodiment. So I really needed to do that work before I could come back to the novel. And yeah, in 2016, I moved to New York and like really just decided that, you know, I'm trans and um, and that's that. That's it's what never, it, that's it's what, never that's that. But. <laughs> but that was the move to New York is when that happened, at least to some degree. Well, what happened was so I started taking tea like in 2015 kind of experimentally and I took it at like a this is getting very personal but um, I took it at like a low dose I like half the kind of standard dose just to sort of try it out and it felt terrible and it was giving what? me like all sorts of terrible side effects like headaches and nausea this thing the thing this the sort the same sorts of things that like cis men with low T experience so I ended up s- pausing stopping taking it and then I was then I just like after a few months of not being on it, I was like, no, no, I have to. It's it's time to do it like the whole way. Um, so then I started taking like a standard dose. So I lived in Wisconsin at that time, and trans healthcare was not protected by law in in the state of Wisconsin. And so it, I wanted, I definitely wanted, I knew I wanted to get top surgery, but I would have to pay out of pocket for that. So I just decided that, and because. Um, yeah, New York state mandates that trans healthcare get covered by insurance companies. I decided that that would be like an added plus. Wait, where were you living in Wisconsin, may I ask? That's the land of my birth. I'm just curious. Oh, really? Yeah, I lived in Madison for two years and I taught at Beloit College. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, I mean, as I'm hearing you talk about this and as I've been thinking about this, uh, reading these kinds of things, reading your book, it's making me aware to a heightened degree, like just how radical these changes are. These are big decisions to make, I guess is what I want to say. Right. Yeah. And there are so many choices, right? Like, do I change my name? Do I not change my name? Do I change my name socially and legally? Or do I change it just socially? Do I change it like among 
a certain community of people, but not like wholesale. And then how do you, and also uh, forgive me for uh, interrupting, but it's like, and then if you do change your name, and even if you don't, but you do this other stuff, at some point you almost have to like make a press release, right? <laughs> like to, to the people yeah. in your life, you know what I'm saying? How do you handle that? Like, I'm going to tell, I mean, you just probably want to tell everybody at once, you know, the people mm. that you do want to tell. Mm-hmm. But that mm-hmm. part of it is something else I found myself thinking about. Like, God, like, how do you handle that? And hopefully people are receptive, but obviously I'm imagining not everybody takes it as well as you might hope. I mean, right? Right. Yeah. Well, I've definitely, I've um, tried out name changing, but the new names I've tried to adopt haven't really stuck. And uh, mostly because I have not really committed to them. So, and that's another thing that comes up when I think about like incohesion, right? We were talking about continuity and discontinuity, cohesion and incohesion in the book. And I think that's something that, you know, that's something that I experience every day who, uh, you know, I, Uh, present as a man these days you know people call me sir pretty much wherever I go but I my name I still go by Megan and so that creates a lot of confusion um, a sense of incohesion like people like I can see those wheels turning when I introduce myself as Megan like so many questions like light up in people's eyes and then there's like this moment of panic often but uh but yeah so Anyway, but you had asked me about four books coming out this year. And really, that was that has been a happy accident. Honestly, what happened is that my novel took so long to sell that I ended up uh, working on these other projects in the meanwhile and um, in the meantime. And then they all kind of came out at once. But one of them is a republication of Kill Marguerite, my first book. And now it is, it's a second edition and it's revised. It's called Slug and Other Stories. There are, I think, about six stories in the original book that got cut and six new stories that got swapped in. And some of the stories that have remained in the second edition have been revised in various ways. And so Feminist Press put out both books this fall, hoping that, you know, they the two would kind of feed each other in terms of like, you know, finding audiences. So yeah, no, I, yeah, very, very much blessed. It's like, it's like the year of Megan Milks and four books you said. Yes. Well, those are the two big ones, not to diminish the other projects, but uh, these are the ones that I feel like are definitely like representative of my body of work. The other one, one of the other ones is a co-edited collection of essays and artwork that I co-edited with Marissa Crawford called We Are the Babysitter's Club, um, Essays and Artwork from Grown-Up Readers. And the final one is a short memoir called Tori Amos Bootleg Web Ring, which honestly um, covers some of the same territory that is in Margaret and the Mystery of the Missing Body from like written as nonfiction. Um, But it's really about like my personal history of the early internet and of the Tori Amos fan community. Okay, so what is it? I mean, I... I probably could figure it out, but let's, I want to hear you talk about what is it with Tori Amos that inspires, <laughs> that inspires you or inspired you in particular as a kid. But, uh, but I think when it comes to Tori Amos fans, that's an intense fandom, right? It, it feels Definitely. like it distinguishes itself. So like, what is it about her? Well, she's a genius for one thing. And yeah, I don't know. Like her creative vision is just so bold and like, 
Have you listened to Boys for Pele? Yeah. I'm a fan. Like I mean, I'm oh, not okay. I'm gotcha. not like a I'm not like a I'm not like an online community fan, but like I'm uh-huh. a fan. Like I think she's cool. In in kind of the same way. I'm more of a Fiona Apple fan, if I'm being honest. Like Fiona speaks to me a little bit more, but I feel like they are of a similar ilk. There's like something very intense about both of them. Mm-hmm. Something kind of no bullshit. Definitely. What I was think that? Tori is like you met, you described Fiona's songs as like very precise. Yeah, I think Tori's Tori's songs are a little more messy, right? You know, like they're very, you know, they're very constructed for sure. But like the way she works with her voice and, you know, there's just a lot of room for messiness and kind of I don't know, like lots of different lots of lots of abrupt transitional shifts in her work. Oh, um, I can and I can see how that might have inspired you, right? This, oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. So, when it comes to publishing your work, you know, work that deals explicit with explicitly with issues surrounding transness and uh, gender nonconformity and all the rest. You said it took a long time for this book to find a home. I, I think that's the case for any book really these days that's not either written by somebody with a I guess what a big platform or like a ton, you know, millions of books sold or whatever. It's going to always be challenging, I think, in this environment for literary fiction that's not easy to like categorize or sell, basically. Mm-hmm. But in particular with your work and the themes that it's dealing in, I mean, I have to imagine there's a pretty limited number of publishers who historically at least have been willing to engage with these kinds of stories. Is your sense of things out there that this is improving? Like, uh, are there more venues? Did you feel like that was part of the challenge in selling it? What were you, what was the feedback? Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, what's mm-hmm. the publishing environment out there like for people trying to tell these kinds of stories? Yeah. I, uh, when you say these kinds of stories, are you referring to... I'm talking about like, like trans literature, you know, like okay. stories that deal with this kind of like the, these kinds of characters who are struggling with these kinds of issues around identity or who are identifying mm-hmm. as trans. Like, mm-hmm. I'm just wondering, I know how hard it is in general to sell. I'm just wondering, like, if you feel like it's that much harder when you're trying to sell trans literature or whatever, or if you feel like things have gotten or getting better. I think it really depends on the kind of book. I mean, I think there's definitely right now a very exciting boom in trans literature, trans writing overall. Um, And there's been a lot of really cool, weird, exciting books by trans authors that have come out this year. I think what made my book a hard sell is that the trans content is actually very minimal. I mean, like in a way, like the book is trans through and through, like from from page one to the end, but it's not a, about an out trans character, you know, and it's a, it's not, it's not telling a familiar, I mean, in some ways it's a very familiar story, but the kind of trans stories that um, are getting told, I don't even know. I feel like things are changing so fast, but when you typically think of like a trans narrative, this is not the book that you think of. This is like, um, it's like pre-trans or something. It's like, uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's a pre-trans narrative. I think that's a great way to to put it. And the other thing that made it, a, there were two other things that made it a hard sell, I think. Well, three. Um, one. <laughs> Actually four. <laughs> <laughs> I could go on, I'm sure. But um, one, the voice shifts. A lot, of, a lot of the feedback I got uh, was like, 
the voice is like too there's too much inconsistency in the voice and then the other two things which i think were probably bigger issues was the eating disorder content which i think a lot of editors are very wary of which i understand i think they probably get a lot of books about eating disorders especially editors who are working in ya which leads me to the third issue is that this book is like it is ya but it's not ya it's like ya for adults that's how i think about it it's like very much shaped by young adult literature but it's not really written for contemporary teens and preteens you know it's but i want to stop you because you said that there's publishers have some resistance to writing around uh eating disorders this is because it's done a lot or it's because they just feel like readers it'll be too much for readers like what's the what's the thinking there what's the logic you know, I'm not sure. And I'm I'm really just kind of speculating based on having looked at a few editors, kind of like their lists of what they are looking for and what they are not looking for. And on a few lists of YA editors of what they're not looking for, there's very specific things about like, you know, we don't want eating disorder books or we don't want like this type of eating disorder book. And then they list some things. I'm sure that many editors who, who are working in publishing, like have their own history of, you know, disordered eating practices. And maybe they just don't want to go there. I, I don't know. I'm like really purely speculating. So, but I do think that that uh, content is really tricky and fraught for a lot of people it's kind of fraught for me. I'm confused. Yeah. I, there's a lot of confusion around it. And I think there's the, like a, there's a lot of confusion because the, like of what we were talking about earlier was that there's just, it's really hard to find consensus. And I don't know. I don't want to get to deep. I know that there are people who are dealing with like truly serious eating disorders. And like, I think what I'm talking about is several degrees away from that. But I feel like I'm often shifting. Like, I don't know how you eat these days, but I've been you know, I'm always tweaking stuff and then I'm sort of like self-criticizing for tweaking stuff because I'm like, why, you know, like just chill. But then I'm also <laughs> like, I do want to be healthy, you know, like I think that's a good thing to be. Right. Yeah. I don't want to be like... like crazy about it, but I don't want to like eat garbage. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. So there's like guilt about beating, being too healthy. <laughs> <laughs> Right, right. I mean, it just, it gets, I think the word for it is absurd. It just quickly gets absurd for me. And then there's that element of frustration to go along with it. But I, you know, whatever resistance there is in publishing, I mean, it seems like something that, that is so central to all of our lives. Obviously, the, we have to all eat to survive. And there is so much confusion and there is so much dysfunction around food. It seems like exactly the sort of thing we would need to see reflected back in literature and sussed out in literature, right? I mean, it's, I don't know. It just seems like I, I was just making the case the other day that, or in an episode the other day, that writing about food and writing about sex are probably the best two things you could possibly write about from an audience standpoint. Like if you want to build a readership, focus on those two things. Every People love to read about food. People love food and they love sex. So if you, if you, that's in your wheelhouse, you're in good shape. <laughs> I'm going to have to think about that. Yeah. <laughs> what do you, do you disagree? Are you finding yourself thinking like, no, I don't think that's right. Or are you, um, well, no, I think you're totally right that people love to read about both. Do they? I don't know. Some, uh, I don't know. Actually, I think probably food. Definitely a lot. Of, there are some people who just like, do not like to read about sex and they find they are. Yeah. They object. 
Right. They find it objectionable content. Well, yeah, there's always going to be those people, but I think most people like to read about sex. Even people who, you know, say that they don't, they probably do. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about routine. I know you've got to probably get on with your day soon, but I just want to talk a little bit about process because I have you here and this is a, you know, a writerly audience. Like, how do you do the work? Are you somebody who is a write everyday person or like, do you have systems in place or is it like more haphazard than that? Um, when I, when I'm like really into a project, I'm usually writing every day when I'm like either between projects or working on multiple things. I, yeah, it gets a little bit more haphazard, but yeah, like on my, in my best writing periods, I write first thing in the morning. How, how, how early are we talking? Are you like somebody's getting up at like five in the morning? Oh no, I wish I were. I feel like that is actually... I know a few people who do that and they're very prolific and I'm very jealous. <laughs> so I feel like that is the secret, but I've yet to, I've yet to be able to, to make that change in my life. Um, but for me, yeah, like eight or nine, you know, pretty regular. And, uh, yeah, I like to have a morning shift for writing. Um, that usually involves reading too. And then if I'm really deep into a project, I'll also do like a second or third shift, like in the afternoon or in the evening. I love, to be able to write late at night and then also return to it in the morning. I feel like I'm at my best as a writer when I get like into that nighttime headspace. That's where I feel like the, the kind of where I'm at, like my most creative, I guess, and my most like open uninhibited. And then in the morning I usually go back and revise and kind of like shape things. Oh, interesting. I feel like usually it's one or the other for people. Like they are either a night owl or an early morning person, but you seem, you sounds like you do both. I, I mean, I would like to do both all of the time, but my life generally doesn't permit it. Um, but that's usually, I feel like when I'm at my, when I'm like most kind of committed to my writing, that's usually what I'm doing. And have you ever considered writing uh, explicit genre like YA, I don't know if you, maybe you have, I, this is the only book of yours that I've read, but have you ever thought like as somebody who grew up reading, you know, Babysitter's Club or Nancy Drew or something, is this something that you've ever entertained in your own creative life? I've, I've thought about it, but, and I, I suppose it's so possible that I could, but I think I'm just not really part of that community. You know, I'm not part of that community of writers. I feel like when I'm writing, I'm not thinking of um, a contemporary teen audience as like my readership. So it would be, it would require a lot of shifting and in terms of like who I imagine as my audience and who I imagine as like my community of peers. Who who do you imagine is your audience now? Well, it depends on the project. I, I usually imagine like other queer and trans people of my generation typically as like the closest audience. And is there a part of writing fiction that you feel like you're best at? I used to ask this question all the time and I've gotten away from it. And I actually, I actually like it because it forces people to sort of brag about themselves a little bit. But, <laughs> like, is there a part of writing that comes easiest to you? Mm, that is a great question. I don't know if I would say it comes easiest to me, but I find I am most proud of the writing that I've done that has a lot of like weirdness or wildness or fantasy in it. 
yeah, I think I'm, I think I am proud of my imagination. <laughs> okay. I would, I'm, I'm on board with that. I would say I'm, I think you should be especially proud of your imagination when it comes to describing like teen body horror and like the, oh. <laughs> the minutia of like gross things that teenagers tend to notice. I mean, I was like, God, this is like uncanny. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So, okay. So you have four books out this year. Like, are you, are you working on another? Like, when can we expect book number five to drop? <laughs> I would just, <laughs> any minute now? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, uh, I am, I am taking my time with, uh, with whatever comes next. I have a few projects and in preliminary stages and I'm sort of like, which one will I commit to? I'm not sure yet. So, okay. yeah. So we don't have any hints on what's, what it's going to be. We don't know yet. Not yet. Okay. That's fair enough. You've got, I mean, I think four books in a year should buy you some time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Megan, it's a pleasure to meet you. Congratulations on this novel. Uh, congratulations on the story collection as well. And the other two books that came out and I'm glad we got a chance to feature this in the book club and hopefully bring you some new readers. So I don't know, just a pleasure. And I wish you well on all that comes next. Thank you so much. Okay, guys, there we have Megan Milks, author of the novel Margaret and the Mystery of the Missing Body, available now from the Feminist Press, the official December pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. You can find Megan Milks online at meganmilks.com. You can follow them on Twitter. The handle is at Sklimnagum. It's Megan Milks spelled backwards. So start with Milks, you know, S-K-L-I-M. You just got to figure it out. Search for Megan Milks on Twitter. Again, the novel is called Margaret and the Mystery of the Missing Body, available now from the Feminist Press. Go get your copy immediately. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Support the show if you like the show. And you can support it over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Sign up for the Other People Brad Listy email newsletter over at otherppl.com. I will write you emails that are kind of fun the other people podcast has a youtube channel subscribe it's free the other people podcast has an app go get it wherever apps are available it's free there's a there's a theme developing here if you have something you want to say to me the email address for the show is letters at other ppl.com the holidays are here they're upon us i'm going to try to keep shows going i don't know if i'm going to be able to do two a week or what's going to happen or not you know tbd such a chaotic time of year drives me crazy <laughs> let's make it stop uh but i do have some good conversations to share with you i'm very excited about it and i have some good interviews lined up for the new year and i've got a book coming out so i hope you can bear with me as i share news of it on this program and I try to kind of take you along for the ride as I gird myself psychologically and uh, spiritually for the experience it should be good I'm trying to stay zen about it just trying to breathe just trying to focus on the breathing just trying to stay with the breath when I lose the breath and I just start thinking and spiraling just come back to the breath Notice myself in my body. 